Greetings, dear listeners. Do we have a treat for you today? You may not have heard of Jimmy Peterson, but after this podcast, you won't soon forget him. He has skied everywhere, and I mean everywhere. And just because American dear listeners haven't heard of him doesn't mean he is unknown. But we'll get to Jimmy's bona fides in time. But let's begin where we should, which is with skiing around the world, which was your amazing, exhaustive travelogue of everywhere there's snow to be skied, with or without lifts, or in some instances, snow. <laughs> to further brief my readers just a tad, dear listeners, Jimmy Peterson has written not one but two monumental books chronicling his worldwide travels as a skier. Trust me, you don't have another book like it in your ski boot collection, which I hope you are keeping. <laughs> Jimmy, if you would, let's start with the backstory of why there are two volumes of Skiing Around the World. Well, I mean, I started with writing articles. I started actually with ski bumming a long time before that, you know, trying to uh, earn my living various different ways on, on the slopes. I've been singing, I've been coat checking, I've been the in-check guy into the disco, I've released a pension uh, for some years, I had a bar, et cetera, et cetera, you know, like all of us, let's say, chronic uh, ski bums do. But, you know, ultimately, I did figure out that a good way of earning a living skiing was with writing and, and photography. The way that started was as a scam. <laughs> um, that's also a tip. <laughs> All great ideas begin with a scam. <laughs> well, sort of a typical ski bum thing. I was going to do a trip in 1985 to South America, you know, on the usual ski bum budget. And I happened to, at a wedding, meet a guy in Finland, who uh, was the editor of the Finnish ski magazine. And I asked him if he could be so kind as to write me a phony letter of introduction, <laughs> you know, claiming that I was a journalist, which I hoped would score me some free lift passes. In the end result of that, Jackson, was that when I got to both Chile and Argentina, the local people were so uh, nice and generous that they not only gave me free lift passes, but often free meals, invited me for a free hotel room. I developed what perhaps a ski bum should never develop, and that's a guilty conscience. Uh, so when I got back, I sat down at a typewriter and I tried to write something. By the way, listeners, a typewriter is an ancient recording device by which we <laughs> put words down on paper, something nobody does anymore. Uh, having had to graduate from a university that didn't tolerate typing mistakes, um, I remember an era in which everyone had whiteout. And this, I just wanted to take you a little bit back in time. This isn't as easy as just sitting in front of your computer and jotting down a few notes. Indeed. Please proceed. Indeed. Yeah, you, know, you, you really had to do a rough draft first, you know, which I hand wrote and then, you know, edit and so on, because it wasn't very easy to just re-edit something like it is now on a computer. And I took photos. I had a hand-me-down camera. It was a Zorky 10. <laughs> I'm sure nobody's heard of that, but it was a Russian camera that somebody <laughs> gave me <laughs> because they they didn't want it anymore. And I, you know, I took some photos with this, with my guilty conscience and lo and behold, when I got back to Europe, where I, I was already living at the time, I managed to sell 
the articles both to, to this Finnish magazine and to a Danish magazine and Norwegian and Swedish. And so lo and behold, I was a ski journalist. And I realized that my product was not really that good, neither the photos nor the writing. So why was it that they bought the the material? And the reason I deduced was that I was going to some pretty obscure or at least remote areas where they didn't have other material from. So I thought, well, if I continue to go to weird and exotic areas, maybe I can continue to sell my material. And that was really the start of skiing so many unusual places. Tell our deal listeners just how many countries you've now visited in order to ski. Well, according to my count, which probably would not be agreed to by the uh, Guinness Book of Records, if I were to uh, go that far, I've skied in 75 countries. But again, you know, that's that's my way of calculating. So I consider Greenland and Denmark to be two separate countries, even though Greenland is officially uh, sort of a uh, territory of Denmark. And I consider Antarctica to be a country, even though it's not. It's really only a continent. So, I think but, these are know. fair choices. It doesn't strike me like you've tried to... First of all, if you skied 72 versus 75, would, would it be that different? These are places, <laughs> by the way, dear readers, that you probably would not include normally as a ski destination. Just a, a touch on a few. North Korea probably didn't occur to you as a place you might want to go find a way to go skiing. <laughs> Mongolia strikes you as a bit inaccessible, strikes, strikes me the same way. How about Kamchatka? There's probably not too many tourists who've been to Kamchatka for any reason whatsoever. Uganda, just to spin the globe and set the finger down. By the way, I think you could probably do that with Jimmy's travel log. And the chances of you're hitting a country he skied in when you just jabbed your finger at the globe, you're pretty darn good. <laughs> By the way, snow optional. I believe, what was it, Qatar, that where you skied sand? Well, there's a few places where, where I've skied. Some places I've skied sand where I also have skied snow. For example, not so far from your home territory in Colorado, there's a there's a place called Sand Dunes National. I'm not sure if it's National Park or National Monument where I've skied the sand dunes. You know, that was just an inadvertent thing. We were driving from one ski bona fide ski resort to another and saw these really nice sand dunes. And said, Wait a minute. This looks like fun. And there you have it. But I have skied sand as well in uh, sand dunes in Peru um, and in Qatar and in Oman. And that's fun. It's not as much fun, I think, as skiing snow. But on the other hand, the, the exotic aspect, I've also done it in Morocco. The exotic aspect is, is cool. And in Morocco, um, which I think was in one way the most enjoyable, we went literally for three hours riding camels to get to the highest sand dune in the area. Camels are not good at going uphill, so we actually had to leave the camels and, and hike up the sand dunes carrying our, our skis. And if you've ever hiked a sand dune, you know when you take one step up, you slide two-thirds of the step back down, so it's a bit of a job. But 
we did it at sunset and we did it again at sunrise. We slept in a Bedouin tent at the base of the sand dune, had a lovely Moroccan meal in the desert. Like anything with skiing, I think it's a combined experience that doesn't only involve sliding on snow, but involves the the beauty of the nature, involves the environment that you're in, the, the different culture. And I think that's very important, Jackson. I know you've skied a lot of different places, especially you know, when you were uh, doing your, uh, you know, touring with uh, hot dogging and with Solomon and, and so on and competing. So you know what an enjoyable experience it is to get to know people from different countries and, and different foods and so on, right? Absolutely. And I want to assure my dear listeners that you very much get the flavor of where Jimmy is writing about in each of his sort of capsule accounts. To me, Jimmy, they read a lot like a diary in a way, almost like confessions of a skier. <laughs> I don't know. I, I mean that in an entirely complimentary way, I hope you realize, because they don't read like, they certainly don't read like the normal magazine resort review, which I find insipid beyond belief, because you pull back the veil, not just on the ski experience, but on the culture in which that ski experience is, is enabled, or maybe in some cases, not so much enabled, but in which you're able to dig deep enough to find a ski experience. I'm just amazed by how you've sustained your drive, which gets back to my original question. You have two volumes, in part because skiing 47 countries in the first volume that you published in 2005 wasn't enough for you. <laughs> no. 47 countries was insufficient tally. So on you went again. Again, as you say, getting back to your first question, what happened with that is I never in my wildest dreams thought that I would write a second volume. My life's work, 47 countries, a, a big, fat, heavy book with lots of photos and, and the whole works. But what happened is I couldn't get rid of the idea that I wanted to ski for free. So, you know, you get so used to being invited to different places and you say, well, I'm a journalist and okay, they give you some lift tickets and so on. You know, this thing that got me started, the scam in South America. So a few years after I took a bit of a break for a year, you know, after finishing the first book. And then I thought, well, gee, you know, I still want to do some, some writing and Originally, I thought I would just add some bonus material. And when the first book was sold out, the first printing, which was three years after it was published, I thought, well, I'll, I'll write, I'll, I'll print some more and, and add, you know, 30 pages of bonus material. But then came that major, I would call it a depression, but, you know, we call it a banking crisis or whatever you want in 2008. And it didn't seem like a very opportune time to do a project like a reprint of the book. So I waited a few years. Well, lo and behold, it took a while for the world economy to recover. And by that time, I had so much new material that I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll just do a second book. Of course, ultimately, the timing of that publishing a few months before Corona, which was much worse than the banking crisis, <laughs> um, was not very uh, opportune. But, you know, that's life. But nonetheless, because of your 
refusal to quit <laughs> and the intoxication of the original scam still being well in force, you did go ahead and produce this really breathtaking work because it genuinely beyond what you would normally find in a ski publication. And I mean, well beyond. It's, it's National Geographic quality in terms of its beauty, its variety, its context, there's personality, there's location. It's not about, oh, you must try the snails at, you know, at Eddie's little bungalow, you know, in such and such a town. You really get a feel for the place. And just to give you a break from your, your efforts here, recount one of the things that you talk about in, I'm not sure this is in volume one, but for, for sure it's in volume two, a resort that doesn't even exist yet called White Wolf, which is a, a patch of land owned by some friends of mine, Troy and Sue Caldwell, uh, that's right between Alpine Meadows and Squaw and has been anticipated as a connecting bit of tissue between these two big resorts. My point is, this is an obscure bit of ski history. It exists in a corner of the world. It is not only, it is, it, it has been covered. There are other people who have chronicled the story of what has happened to this bit of land called White Wolf that right now, in terms of lift access, has towers. <laughs> but yeah, right. um, but point was, this is your report on an area that doesn't even exist yet, and you nailed it. It's nuanced, there's complexity to it, there's why on earth hasn't it sold, what on earth is going on, and you distilled that all into a coherent story from a Great distance. Now, not great distance in terms of the total arc of your life. I realize we go back to childhood, you've got connections to Lake Tahoe. But nonetheless, for a journalist who's not based in our area, much less our state, much less our country, <laughs> to get the details so accurately told about a resort that doesn't, can't even sell you a lift ticket. I thought was, <laughs> this guy has knows how to do a deep dive. And so... That's what sucked me in. And then once you open your book and start to realize how rich it is and how diverse it is, you realize that you've got a friend for a long time in your books, because this is not going to be a quick read. It's, it's going to be a read you want to sit down and luxuriate in. You obviously have a literary background because of the illusions that appear throughout your text. Your love of language, where did that come from? Well, both of my parents were European my father was born in Norway, my mother in Austria. They were both in some way uh, refugees of World War II. My mother was, her family was Jewish and they had to escape Austria in 1938. My father, if you know your history, you know that, that Hitler in, invaded and took over Norway in 1940. And he was in the merchant marine the Norwegian merchant marine as a ship's captain. And the Norwegian government in exile in London, created a program where they could do something for the war effort, as, as most of their citizens were sort of held captive within their home country. So the government in exile loaned thousands of sailors to the American Navy. From one day to the next, my father went from being a captain of a merchant Norwegian merchant ship to captaining an American destroyer in the American Navy. So I have some foreign language that, you know, was around me when I was young. And also, I think the fact of 
We didn't have a lot of uh, money when I was growing up. We had kind of a very normal middle-class background. So it took many years for my parents to scrape enough money together to like visit the old country. So I was nine when we traveled in 1959 to to Europe, to Norway, and meet my dad's family and back to Austria and quite a few other European countries. When you travel for the first time at that age, for me anyway, I was fascinated by the travel and by these different cultures. And you're at an early enough age, I think, that you don't necessarily compare everything that's different from your home country as being bad. You you just see it honestly for what it is. And some things were weird and some things were cool. And it was a great experience. And I think it just continued with future travels. And of course, probably a very important thing. As I got old enough to travel by myself, I discovered that I found European women to be very different and interesting as well. So that was an important cultural discovery. So I I don't know if I'm deviating too much from the point of skiing, but... <laughs> You've skied all around the world. Where is the one place you would most like to go back to? There's a few places that I would put on that list. It's, you know, when you've skied 75 countries and 650 odd resorts, there's usually a, a number of places that are high on the list. Of the exotic places, I loved skiing in Iran. The people are extremely generous, hospitable, kind to, uh, you know, almost unbelievable which is typical, perhaps, of of the Middle East. I mean, they're known for being very hospitable. Unfortunately, Iran, among various countries, gets a very, very bad press in the United States and often in, in Europe as well. But there's a big difference between giving bad press to the political leaders and giving bad press to the people because the people are very kind. And the powder was great. It has similarities in its climate to places like Utah, where storms come over the desert and dry out and you get very, very light snow. So that's a, that's a place that I really like. And then I've been a few times, but would gladly go back to Kashmir, the province of India, which has been contested for ages, you know, between the Pakistan and India. It belongs to India, at least the part of Kashmir where I was skiing in Gulmar. I did heli skiing there as well as skiing within the lift system. But for one thing, you have a mountain, the the regular mountain in Gulmar, which has lifts. The main lift goes up to 4,000 meters. It's one of the highest lifts in the world for skiing. The culture is just out of this world. I didn't stay the whole time in Gulmar, which is nice in any case, but you're only about two hours drive from the capital of Kashmir, which is Srinagar. And it's built on a lake called Dal Lake. And many people stay in houseboats. You have these gondola-shaped taxis that bring you back and forth from the mainland to the houseboat. 
there's so much that is unusual and special about the culture there. Food is excellent. Uh, it's not quite the same as, as typical Indian food. Kashmiri food has certain specialties, but you know, I like Indian food in any case. So that's a, a special place for me. I would say among the Alpine areas, I'm, I'm talking to you now from Salbach. Salbach is uh, one of the largest ski resorts in Austria, probably has about 100 lifts altogether, w- connecting with various villages of Hinterglem, Leogang, Fieberbrunn, Selamsee, which are all integrated on one lift pass. And this is where I started out ski instructing back in the 70s, which I thought was going to be just a one-off season after I finished studying at university. Uh, And instead, you know, I went back for one more season and one more season. And now we're almost 50 years later, and I'm still coming back here. So that's a place that I like very much. And another area in the Alps that I think is is fantastic is the Dolomites. You know, there's so many different villages that are included on that Super Dolomiti lift pass, which has 460 odd lifts. So it doesn't really matter where in the Dolomites, you know, if you're in Valgardena or Canase or Cortina, they're all dripping with real Italian flavor. And the mountains themselves, as I'm sure you know, these limestone monoliths and beautiful sheer cliffs are your your you know your breath is taken away. It's Every almost otherworldly beautiful. It, it, it's like my, this can't be on the same planet as the as the rest of us. The Dolomite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Some a UNESCO other- World Heritage Site. Uh, the whole the whole range. You know, they've maintained it in a good way. You know, the villages are are still pristine and they haven't been overdone with poor architecture to uh, destroy the flavor. And yeah, it's great. You've touched on something without actually mentioning it here, which is the difference between the U.S. and the European ski experience globally. Now, you and I have shared some emails and some back and forth talking about how distorted the Americans' view is of skiing and its place in the you know the culture of the country in which it occurs compared to the integration of skiing in Europe and the overall experience of being a skier in the European continent versus being a skier strapped to the U.S. continent. Please comment. As you say, we have compared some of our ideas, and I think we are on the same page on that. It's I mean, I grew up, I learned how to ski in the United States at a time when in the early 50s, when skiing was in in its infancy. And it was nice, you know, going to little Southern California resorts of Big Bear and Mount Waterman, Mount Baldy, Holiday Hill and Kratka Ridge and Blue Ridge, Holiday Hill and Blue Ridge later combined to become Mountain High. And that was fine. That was nice. And we go. We went to Alta very much, which is still maintained pretty much a very similar tone to what it always was. The place really for skiers, there, there isn't a lot of infrastructure as far as a, a village. Each lodge, you know, maybe has a ski shop you can rent from and, and so on. 
but many of the ski resorts in the United States, the good ones are the ones that are uh, originally old mining towns very often. And then some of them are purpose-built resorts. Regardless of where a purpose-built resort is, and there's many in France, for example, I don't really like them as much. In the European villages of Austria and, and Switzerland and Italy, uh, you know, in South Tyrol and Italy, you have villages that really where the ski experience is more, what's the word I'm looking for? It's organic. These villages existed as little poor farming villages. And at some point when skiing was becoming more popular, the local population who anyway couldn't farm in the winter because there's snow on the ground, they thought, well, you know, we can build a few lifts and rent out spare room to some, some tourists. And it grew organically and it grew with the main bulk of the people in the village all gaining something from the ski tourism. Whereas in the United States, you have these huge corporations that take over the town and they own all the restaurants on the mountain and they own the rental shop and they own the lodge and, and, and so on. And they gouge the prices. <laughs> There's no competition. It's just completely different experience. Unfortunately, the more recent development in the United States of a ski resort really is developed not for the purpose of skiing, but it becomes a, a real estate development is even a worse happenstance because the company that goes in and buys the resort and then enhances it by per, perhaps putting in a golf course and, and improving the lift infrastructure, etc. But they're really, they don't care about the skiing. They're trying to raise the value of the land. They build trophy homes, they build condos, they sell that stuff off and they've made their profit and then they don't care anymore. And that's not the way it is in, in Europe. I think there's another key difference that you opened my eyes to, which is the European skier is granted a vacation period per annum of roughly six weeks, whereas in the U.S. you get two weeks. and They look a little sideways when you take those. Uh, so there's a different level of, I don't know, pressure on the consumer and then the just the expense itself. The What does it cost to go up the mountain? What's, what's it cost to be lift-assisted up the hill? And it's a big difference between the U.S. and Europe. Can you elaborate? It is. On that? It is. No, that's that's another, another thing that we have discussed, and I agree with you fully, Jackson. That's a real problem. And I see I don't I hope it doesn't happen but the the US ski industry is in bad shape because of that because people don't have enough vacation so a ski resort in the United States is rarely a destination resort it's a resort where people have time to go on a Saturday or Sunday maybe they can go for both Saturday and Sunday go up Friday night but in Europe the bulk of the skiers are there for an entire week. They come on a Saturday, they leave the next Saturday. That allows the hotels and the restaurants and the huts that are selling lunches on the mountain and the, the ski lift tickets to be much less expensive because you have enough people to really support the, the industry. But if there's people 
as you say in the U.S., that only have two weeks vacation instead of six, usually that two weeks is devoted to a summer vacation. And that leaves them, unless they are super passionate skiers, with just uh, skiing on weekends. And that means the prices of everything in the U.S. is basically twice as much. If somebody lives in New England, they can fly to Europe and literally be a week in an Alpine resort for half of what it would cost for them to fly to Utah or Colorado, if not maybe even less than half. <laughs> so that's, um, that's a big difference. Let's switch to another subject. You've had the great fortune because of the business that you've created for yourself. That's another way in which you and I are alike. Sort of, <laughs> how would you like to do this? Well, if you want to do it, you have to create it yourself. So go get them, Tiger. <laughs> but the other point I wanted to point I wanted to raise now is you've gotten the chance to ski with a lot of great people, and in some cases, world-renowned great people. You and I share. Uh, another bond there, and that we are both friends with Sylvain Saudin, one of the first skiers de l'extrême. If anyone defined it, he he did originally. Skier de l'impossible, as he used to be called. Talk to me a little, you can begin with Sylvain, but you can take this anywhere you like. The personalities that you've shared so much of your time around the world with uh, there's no there's some that have been sort of vagabonds with you and then the ones that you've had a chance to meet maybe it was just a one-off but they left a deep impression well sylvan was a is a great larger than life personality and what struck me i was just starting with my trying to create a, a niche for myself as a ski journalist and i read in one of the ski magazines that that Sylvan had started a heli-skiing operation in Kashmir. As I mentioned before, Kashmir is a favorite place of mine. And I thought, well, you know, that would be a real feather in my cap if I could write something about skiing in, in the Himalayas. I mean, that's the king of all the mountain ranges. So I contacted Sylvan. I was audacious enough didn't have much of a resume by that time, but I had some articles that I had done. And this was 1989. It was funny. I didn't reach him. And the, you know, then I left a message. And of I don't know if it was the next day or a couple of days later, I get a call back. And he's calling from a phone booth. <laughs> and you know he calls me and after a couple of minutes he says oh, hold on a minute i have to put another coin in the box <laughs> and i'm thinking this guy who already at that time had established himself as the most extreme skier in the world he was a ski bum i mean i could feel it he was just an easy going and he was he was living his dream you know he was doing hella skiing and just kind of put the whole thing together. And yeah, he said, yeah, great. You know, come over. I invite you for the trip. That's fine. When we got there and on numerous occasions on that trip, we land with the helicopter and he says, uh, this is a first descent. We have never been on this spot. You're thinking, wow, I'm standing on a place where probably nobody in the history of the world has ever stood and I'm going to ski down a line that nobody has ever skied. And that's kind of the adventure that skiing was 
a hundred years ago and was, I think, when you and I were growing up and slowly, you know, is is losing that in these big mega resorts where everything is uh, has apps and everything is marked. If there's a, a line between two trees, it's marked as a double diamond run. So that was that was different. That was the way skiing should be. He is that kind of person. I have to add to that, that we also fortunately survived an incredible avalanche with Sylvain. I'm not blaming that on him, but that's part of what is involved with adventure skiing. When you're doing lines that have never been skied before and landing on landing spots, that's, as you well know, not the way it's done nowadays in Canada. You know, they have they have little flags. They have their 40 or 50 or however many set landing spots that they have done their avalanche testing zillions of times. And, and everything is very, very safe, even though it certainly it seems like an adventure for anybody who's doing it for the first time. And it is an adventure, but not in the same sense as doing something where you're landing on a mountaintop that's never been landed on before. You've done more than one trip that I would describe, at least judging by the wonderful photography that accompanies your writing, as truly otherworldly. I think of, and I'm going to mispronounce this location, but it's in South America. It was the uh, sort of tabletop mountains that Conan Doyle was inspired to write The Lost World about. It was Mount Roraima. 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 The photography, by the way, of just this one piece is worth the price of admission. I mean, it's unbelievable when you see the environment and then you read about the environment and realize, oh my God, just to access this, never mind going downhill. <laughs> the uphill access to this location sounded absolutely harrowing in the sense you have cliffs that are actually leaning back towards the climber. <laughs> As a non-climber, that sounds positively terrifying. How did you get the sack to climb this stuff just to go skiing? Well, there's a little perhaps misunderstanding. There's so I wrote a, you've seen the chapter, obviously, on on Venezuela. And Venezuela is another country that is very interesting, also gets very bad press. I'm not saying that, I I think right now they're in pretty bad trouble. I don't know that I would want to hop off to Venezuela tomorrow. But when I was there, it was also getting bad press. Those tabletop mountains near the border between Venezuela, Brazil, and Guyana were not a skiing story. We did go skiing in Venezuela at Pico Humboldt, which is one of the last remaining, has one of the last remaining glaciers in Venezuela. The peak of Pico Humboldt is is like 4,900 meters, which is somewhere about, uh, I don't know, 15 to 16,000 feet. We, you know, we hiked up there. You hike up through different vegetation levels, through jungle, and finally you get, you know, above the jungle, and everything is is quite austere. And and then, lo and behold, you kind of come out of the jungle, and here's this snow that you see above you, and it's very otherworldly. But while we were there, I just thought, well, we have to do this. This Mount Roraima, the tabletop mountains. There's there's quite many of them. The highest waterfall in the world, uh, Angel Falls, comes down, descends from one of those tabletop mountains. And Roraima 
even though it, all the mountains look like inaccessible, like you'd have to be a bona fide mountain climber. You just have these sheer cliffs all the way around. And yet it's not really that way. There, in, on the, in the case of Mount Roraima, there is a normal trail, you know, steep trail, but it's nothing that re- requires any technical climbing. It's a hike. And you can get to the top of Mount Roraima, which is fascinating. And there's, for people that are into botany, there are apparently various plants and insects that only exist on that tabletop, on that mountain. And then other of the tabletop mountains have other plants or insects that maybe only exist on on that mountain. And we camped overnight. You know, we had a guide. It was like a four-day trek because you begin trekking across very grasslands, let's say, just to get to the, the mountain from where you start out in some vague sense of civilization. It's not difficult to climb up there. It's a really mind-blowing experience because when you are at the top and you you know, sometimes we just sat there and dangled our legs, you know, with 500 uh, meters of, of nothingness down below us. And you look out, to, when you look out to the south over this expanse of jungle that probably similar to the Sylvan experience of a line that's never been skied, there you're looking out over jungle that's probably nobody has ever walked into or, or gone through. In, in Guyana and Brazil in that remote area. It's wonderful and fascinating that there are places on this earth that, that really haven't seen human footsteps before. Wow. Well, let's switch to another part of the planet. Let's talk to, you've been a ski resort bum for a long time, that in, and you're a musician. That puts a lot of trouble into play because that can mean late nights, parties. You should know you should know a lot about the underbelly of a lot of these resorts. First of all, what's the best party town in Europe? You're an American and you want to, whether you're into singles or swingles or whatever you're into, <laughs> but if you just want to party with others like, like-minded skiers, who's on the podium of best uh, party towns in Europe? Well, Salbach, you know, where I am now, as I said, has been a great party town. You know, I'm uh, at my age now, I I try to avoid that. I've I've uh, survived the alcoholic binges of my youth well enough that I'm still around. But Salbach is a, a great place. Renowned places like the Hinterhag Alm where it's just wall-to-wall people dancing with their ski boots on, people hanging from the rafters, spilling beer on the dancers down below and a live band playing kind of shitty music. But anyway, nobody cares because they're so drunk. <laughs> so th- that's a cool place. Of course, you have the Moservirt in St. Anton, which has probably become even more famous than, than the Hinterhag. It started later. You used to have, and it still is popular, the Crazy Kangaroo in St. Anton. You know, the places where there are a lot of ski bums usually have this party atmosphere because ski bums are often attracted to the party aspect as much as they're attracted to the snow. You know, some people might even say they were drinking bums rather than ski bums. Ishgul was supposed to have been a uh, hotbed of early coronavirus spreading. Is Ishgul still on the podium of party? I, I think the, the thing with Ishgul, I don't like Ishgul. And the reason is 
Ishkel probably have as many lap dancing places as you have ski rental shops. Ishkel really, I think, is Austria's attempt to keep the German male tourist from going to Thailand and tr- attracting him to go to Austria instead. If you if you follow my line of reasoning, a guy in uh, Dusseldorf can probably not tell his wife, uh, I'm going with a few of my buddies to Thailand for a two-week vacation or a week vacation, but he can get away with telling him I'm going to Austria for some skiing, whereas his intention is perhaps not really the skiing so much. So Ishkel is not, it's like a brothel. <laughs> I don't thank, thank you for exposing the raw underbelly of Ishkel. Let's talk about <laughs> you. Let's talk about you, the musician. You, you've you've sung for your supper, it sounds like, in more than one venue. And also, you had suggested when we had spoke beforehand that you might have a couple of pieces that you've composed that might our listeners might find interesting. But before you pick up your guitar and start strumming, where have you been the entertainment? Shall we say? Salbach has been a place where I've done a lot of entertaining. After two years of, of ski instructing in the 70s in Hinterglem, which is connected with Salbach, some travel rep, you know, saw me sitting with a couple other ski instructors, you know, strumming the guitar and playing something and said, hey, can I hire you? Do we've got a Hütteabend, you know, an overnight hut evening in one of the huts and, and could you come along and entertain? So I said, sure. And then the light bulb lit up and I realized I could earn more money singing than ski instructing. And I would have my days free to ski powder rather than being on the baby lift with some nubile beginners or perhaps not so nubile beginners. So I started doing a lot of work uh, singing. And for many years, when the snow got a bit meager in Salbach, which is which is not such a high resort, it peaks out at 2,100 meters. By mid-March, I would just take my guitar and move on to the higher Alps. I went to Saint Anton, and then I ended up in the high Alps in, in France, in, in Tin, Val d'Isère, Val Torrance. And I would just contact the travel reps who were organizing fondue evening or sledding parties for their groups and just say, well, you know, I could come along and entertain. And so I was able to just do that on a kind of improvising last minute basis quite a lot as well. I've had a company that organizes corporate ski events. Could be an internal event where the the company is just going to have a sort of rewarding their people for a good year probably has a conference involved as well. But instead of having the conference in their local office, they're having a three or four day ski trip and they're going to have a conference in Cortina or in in, uh, La Plane or someplace. And I organize some of those trips. And so in recent years, the singing has been usually just for these private groups. So I haven't had as much time. The moment I started working a lot with the journalism as well. I couldn't keep a steady, you, the, the singing normally when I was in Salbach, you would have to, you know, I'd have, let's say I'd have a gig at this sledding place once a week or twice a week, every Tuesday and Thursday. And then I would have a gig at an after ski place every Wednesday or whatever. But 
when I wanted to start doing more of the work on the books and the articles and be off suddenly to uh, someplace or other to write an article, I couldn't keep that kind of schedule. The singing was my major way of supporting myself until probably about 20 years ago, supporting myself in the ski, ski season. And, and then the journalism became more important and these events. In order to be a good ski bum, you've got to find all sorts of little odd jobs to fill in the cracks in life, don't you? <laughs> you do. You do. And I've been very lucky that I've been able to do it with such fun and creative kind of jobs like singing and like photography and writing. As you know, as you well know, that's a bit more fun than cleaning tables, washing dishes, coat check. But I, you know, I did my, I did my, paid my dues with some coat check and some of that as well. So uh, I've earned uh, the, <laughs> the whole thing. I'm always very impressed with your um, amazing knowledge of equipment. I love reading your pieces on equipment because I think they are so spot on. The fact that you are always rightfully touting the specialist ski shops that people shouldn't just go to these places that don't know shit about. It's such a difference. Probably, perhaps with your help, the people that really are very much into skiing, they know this. They know to go to a shop where you really can trust the people who are working there rather than just your any old uh, shop that sells cheap gear. Skiing is always trying to pull in new skiers, quite correctly. I could not applaud any efforts more so than trying to build a skier base. But those new people don't know where the guardrails are, and they don't know what the rules of the road are, and they don't think twice about buying a hairdryer from Amazon or whatever, take advice from some online customer service gal about whatever it is that they're shopping for. Skis and boots, particularly boots, are not like that. <laughs> so we have to remember to coach them up. And that applies also to the returning skier. The skier has been out of the sport for 10, yeah. 15, 20 years. That's a wave of those people coming back. They self-identify as skiers. And as soon as they self-identify as skiers, we, the insider who are supposed to be advising them, say to ourselves, well, they already know how to do this, 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 and this. No, they don't. They don't know how to take their boots on and off, frankly. They don't maybe know how to <laughs> put their skis on and off. They may not know how to carry them. They don't know the insider's view of the sport as they've been away for a long time. And what little they knew then is trapped in amber. It's a little time capsule. But if you open it today, it turns out it's not worth very much because of the entire scenery has changed. That's why I created something called the Returning Skiers Handbook. So you'd have yeah. a visual, quick to digest way of while your salesman is off in the racks getting your properly sized boot to bring out and try on you, that's going to take a little while. 10 minutes and you'll learn that, hey, the thing you said about a thin sock, look here, Mabel, it's true. Hey, turns out your toe is supposed to touch the end of the boot when you first put it on. Just all the basic training we don't think we need to do with a quote unquote skier. But there's more than one type of skier. And you and I, I'm afraid, are not exactly typical of the regular skier. No, no, that's, and thank God for that. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Would you uh, share one of your works with us? You're not only a singer and a, you're also a songwriter. Do you have a piece that you could? I w yeah, I would like to. I mean, I've written songs about all kinds of different things. The usual love song, love gone wrong from my personal experiences. 
But the songs that are related to our subject today, one of them really expresses my philosophy about life. I think that would be a good one to start with if you want to do the other one, which is about global warming, which is also very relevant. These songs uh, I've recorded together with my son. We have a band together. His name is Eric. He's also a very good skier, worked as a ski instructor here in Austria as well. We've done some of my travels more recent times together with him. He's, he's modeling for my camera. But we have a lot of fun. We do a tour in Austria every summer, sometimes a short one in the winter, doing gigs here. One particular song, it's called La Dolce Vita. Yeah, I think if you put it on, it tells the story in and of itself. Before you begin, if you need a moment to pick up your guitar or your harmonica or whatever you're going to accompany yourself with. I have a recording of this with my son. Oh, I see uh, a recording. Okay. I do want to say you mentioned your son when I was explaining to my wife, Stephanie, basically your lifestyle had been for roughly 20 or 30 years of your life, which is to go skiing all around the world. She was also seeing me take off and not come back for a while. She said, quote, he must be single, close quotes. And, well, and yet you have a son. <laughs> so how did you pull that off? Well, I, <laughs> well, I had I I was never married. Actually, I've had some longer relationships, and and one of them uh, with Eric's mother was for seven or eight years, and we're still very very good friends, uh, she and I. Although you know we never got married, and we're not uh, we're not together currently. I've been together with the same partner for about twenty years, but you know, marriage is something that uh, kind of goes against my philosophy. Let's say. <laughs> well, why don't we put a bow on this lovely exercise with the recording of La Dolce Vita with yourself and your son, Eric. And while you're teeing that up, let me just say thank you so much, Jimmy, for, for sitting down with me this morning or this evening in your case and sharing with us your perspective, because I really think that you have created a stunning volume here, whichever volume we're referring to, volume one or volume two. Ladies and gentlemen, if you can only get one, get volume two, because it's just that much more information. But no matter which one you may select, how can they find skiing around the world? www.skiingaroundtheworldbook.com. You probably can, if you Google my name, uh, Jimmy Pedersen or Skiing Around the World, you'll find it, but you might not find it to, you know, my website. So skiingaroundtheworldbook.com uh, is the website to get it. And it's not available many places because I've been too busy skiing to do very much distribution. <laughs> Spoken like a true ski bum. <laughs> so here's, here's La Dolce Vita.
traveling free. I'm traveling free. I wanna travel free. Oh, thank you for that. I, I want to travel free. I, the ultimate motto of the ski bum. Uh, yeah, I, for sure. I, I have to say, Jimmy, you've you've embodied and, and lived the life of the ski bum, I think, just about to the red line, about the, the red needle. I don't think you could have really drunk any deeper from the cup based upon your worldwide experiences. I'm looking forward, Jackson, to when uh, hopefully sometime soon we can lock horns and make a few turns together and perhaps have a drink together. Oh, <laughs> what the heck? I, I've been known to have the occasional beverage. Yeah, I, <laughs> I, would, I would love to do that with you, Jimmy. I couldn't think of a better guy to spend a great ski day with. I mean that. So, Jimmy, I want to thank you again for joining us here on Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. It's been today. It's been Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan and Jimmy Pedersen. Jimmy, thank you again. Europe's foremost ski journalist. And by the way, folks, if you get a copy of this book, it's like getting a great ski. You will never regret owning it. <laughs> thank you, Jackson. Thank you for your many compliments during the during the interview. I really appreciate it and enjoy always talking to you and comparing some of our ski experiences. We've lived parallel lives, haven't we? We have indeed. We have indeed. Covering two different sides of the street. Between us, we've, we've covered it pretty thoroughly, I think. Indeed. <laughs> indeed. We're lucky men. Thank you, Jimmy. All right. Appreciate okay. it. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye -bye. And on that note, we conclude this episode of Real Skiers with Jackson Hogan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>